Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. Today, we're exploring a new angle around the tech lash, which is defined as a growing animus towards big tech companies and even a generalized opposition to technological innovation. And this opposition, in our view, engenders support for policies that are not good for tech. And we should probably start by making clear to anyone who might not know us well that we talk and write a lot about the tech lash at ITIF because we think it's deeply problematic for future progress, prosperity, and competitiveness. And our guest today has a unique perspective on this issue that will be great to explore. Nuri Weiss-Blatt was a research fellow at the Annenberg School at the University of Southern California. Her new book, The Tech Lash and Tech Crisis Communications, will be out in March. Welcome. Hi, glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So your book, uh, Nuri, your book is about how tech journalism has influenced the tech lash. I mean, hard to read a story today about tech without tech lash probably being in it. The way you describe the relationship makes it impossible to ignore how coverage also influences public reaction, whether it's just the average person on the street or policymakers. And you also talk about the series of pendulum swings, kind of pro, con. Uh, Can you say a little bit more about that? And also, why did you get focused on this? Yeah, sure. So just a bit about me. Prior to my academic journey, uh, I worked in the industry in both tech journalism and tech PR. So first I represented the companies, pitched the media, then I switched sides to be a tech reporter and later a deputy editor. So basically I moved from being on the side that sends the press releases to be on the side that receives them and deleting most of them. Around that time, I finished my master's degree in communication and political science. And when I looked for uh, academic studies about my occupation, my passion, tech journalism, I found this depressing void. And I was like, why does nobody focusing on studying this type of coverage? I looked for examinations of tech media agenda and found none. So I decided to do it myself. So for five years of my PhD in communication, I compared the tech coverage in traditional media to tech blogs coverage. But you ask about research in this field, Well, a decade ago, it was tough. Comment that I got from one of the reviewers was, who cares about tech news? (laughs) They are not important. (laughs) And so I needed to justify the need to even study tech media. I don't need to do that anymore. My initial research fellowship at USC Annenberg was based on the criticism that the tech media is not tough enough. It was on the influence of corporate PR and the non-investigative nature of the tech coverage. That was the research proposal. But then 2017 happened. So like any good startup, I needed to pivot. The data forced me. uh, So I changed my study. And the past four years were a deeper dive into the evolving interplay between tech journalism and tech PR. I focused on tech scandals and expanded the analysis to crisis communications. So I can talk about not only about the roots of the change, but also the tech company's crisis responses. And I must say that researching this niche, 
it wasn't studied enough. It, what made me more purpose-driven to fill the gap. And the upcoming book is the result of all this background story. And as you said, yes, the media set the narrative, right? Tech journalists are now looking for harm. And when they dug in and found those tech scandals and had like real impact in the world, more journalists joined the effort. And you asked about the pendulum swing. So yes, the theme of the book is pendulum swings because I'm talking about all the historical background that got us to tech clash. And we moved from one extreme to the other uh, more than once or twice. So the book have three uh, phases. I'm calling them the pre-tech clash, tech clash, and post-tech clash. And I organized it that way in order to show how things have changed over time, but also each phase has its own changes within. So if you think about the history is that we were mainly on the utopian side before we moved to the dystopian side. So for decades, uh, the tech companies were used to mainly flattering coverage. Think about early 90s or late 90s uh, during the dot-com bubble, the innovators were like rock stars. But after the bubble burst and the companies you know, failed, they all moved from being God to being a dog. So already back then, the pendulum swung from one extreme to the other. In mid-2000s, the positive coverage returned a bit regarding the innovations coming out of the tech industry. And, you know, it was justified. I mean, we had groundbreaking things like the iPhone, so actual exciting things. So my studies are based on, you know, I'm looking at big data analytics. So in a typical pre-techless year, the big tech companies' peaks of coverage, like their biggest stories in their timeline, uh, were product launches, either you know software or hardware, or business reporting like IPOs or M&As. So the thing is that they were negative stories all the time in the tech media around failures, layoffs, investigations, privacy issues, uh, of course. Why do you think that was? I mean, why the negative, especially in the tech press, why so negative on tech? Because those were, you know, important stories to tell and they were interesting and they were impactful. And journalists' role is to ask the tough questions and looking for those uh, harmful things. The thing is that although we had those stories all the time, they were less visible when I'm looking like in the yearly time and actually need to look for them <laughs> because they drew considerably less coverage. So every product launch got much more coverage. And this is why I call this type of coverage product journalism. So most of the tech reporters, uh, tech bloggers just focused on, you know, hands-on review. We have uh, new shiny and cool things. And most of the coverage was cheerleading of the innovations. Uh, but of course, that's not the case <laughs> anymore. I agree with you that it's, it's certainly not the case. And there are certainly some you know, reasons why the tech media has sort of done this. I mean, you had some mistakes from some of the major tech companies and you had um, other things, you know, like different kind of scandals and things. But, you know, one of the things I'm struck by, though, is how consistently media, tech media kind of tell one side of the story only in some of these areas. Like a good example of that was facial recognition and the potential for bias, particularly against uh, racial minorities and women. And uh, there was a study done by NIST, and it evaluated all these 
about 100 different technologies. And it found that about 10 of them were actually had no bias, zero bias. They were just, just as good, if not better, for dark-skinned people as light-skinned people, women and men, et cetera. But virtually every single story says algorithms are biased. Facial recognition algorithms are biased because 90% of them were biased. And the right way to write that story is some algorithms are biased, some are not. A lot of experts suggest that you only allow companies or the government to adopt unbiased algorithms. But that doesn't, that I guarantee you, that is not what has been reported. And, and I'm just curious why you think, is it just sort of laziness? Is it they, they don't care? Or they know that a bad story is going to get more eyeballs than a balanced story? What's going on there? There are many factors at play here, I think. So first, I think we should mention pack journalism. It's like for journalists, there's a drive to be in sync with the major outlets like the New York Times and other prestigious newspapers, which set what is news, what can be counted newsworthy. So most journalists just look over their shoulder, looks at their colleagues and cover the same story from the same perspective. And and journalists told me that there is indeed this pack mentality, but it's not wrong. It's just happening. And often where there's smoke, there's fire. So we need to investigate it and report about it. And the thing is, I think that you're describing is that this copycat behavior that everybody's writing about the same thing from the same framing, that it can snowball dramatically into media storms. So now that's the narrative and that's it. The thing is that the journalists that I spoke with will tell you that's our job to highlight, even if it's a small percentage of bad things, to highlight those bad things so the companies could fix it. So it's their way to make the world a better place because, you know, the companies do spend more time anticipating how their products can be, uh, you know, or misused or be biased and putting some safeguards or improvements. And for the journalism, it's just like saying it's because of us. We were criticizing them for not doing it for so long. And you see now it's better. So it's an example of the system working. I, I don't agree with that. So imagine we have um, uh, in COVID, for example, so we have a lot of medical science journalists writing about that. And, they, and, and you know, I'm sure there's been a bunch of vaccines. Maybe they don't work very well. And so they write a story about vaccines and they say, well, this vaccine actually only has a 20% rate and this one only has a 30% rate. Man, these vaccines are terrible. But they don't mention that the other vaccines are super good. And to me, that is responsible journalism. You, can, you can't just single out sort of and say, hey, there are things that, that are bad, even though, because the implication is no algorithm is unbiased. And that's what those stories are really saying. And that's just not true. It's, it's, it's biased journalism. And that's, I, don't, I just don't understand that. That's, that's my question. I don't understand. I don't think it's legitimate. And I don't think it's, I don't understand it. Well, I think if the media has any bias, is that it's pro-conflict. Those are the stories that are interesting. Sure. That's a good point. But uh, on those stories, they could, have, they could have talked to us. They could have talked to other think tanks that are pro-facial recognition. And, and we could have given them a nice quotable quote that said the other side is wrong. And so even there... And instead, you know, we have we deal with policymakers all the time that point to this study that we believe is flawed and we think we've demonstrated is flawed. And they point to this study as they're thinking about regulating this technology. And it's it's a huge problem that nobody really understands where we're coming from because the, the ship has kind of sailed is sort of how I feel about it. And it's really frustrating. Yeah, you're touching on a very crucial point is that all the tech clash 
coverage has real impact, not only on the company's uh, work or the consumer behavior and trust, but also the political field, like all the rising of tech regulation, all the pushback of the investigations and everything. So, but I think what makes it complicated and interesting is that on each topic that you want to talk about, like inside the tech clash, uh, content moderation, disinformation, data rights, antitrust, monopoly power, they all include contradictory arguments on both the problems and their resolutions. I think you talk about it a lot. Absolutely. And look, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm, I don't expect, nor would I want the media to be just sort of, you know, reporting on press releases. Hey, this is great. That's not what the, the free and independent media should be doing. But when there's a sort of consistent one side to that, another, another example of that, for example, is... Um, the effect of tech on jobs. You just constantly see that, that, that AI is going to be destroying jobs. And again, there are some legitimate scholars who've done work on one side, and there are legitimate scholars who've done work on the other side. And there are think tanks on one side. We're on the side of it's not. But again, I just see most, most of the stories on this have, have already accepted that as, as the narrative, and they don't push back on it all that much. They don't question it. Well, I think the way I'm looking at all the TechLash coverage is that there's this concept of technological determinism. So I think we can look at the TechLash as um, deterministic. So technology is like the determined force which ruins society, period. And then you don't have room for all the nuances of, you know, uh, human agency, social context, how social impact, uh, the design, use of technology, or how technology is affecting and doing positive things uh, in society. So you, you just leave out this frame because it's not the main one. So you can still report about it, but it's not like the main story. In your view, what have the tech companies done that is good and appropriate here? And where could they have done better to help the narrative? And I guess maybe kind of closing on what should they do going forward? Yeah, so when I analyzed their crisis responses, I found that I had like different tech companies, different scandals, and yet the responses were very much alike. So it's like every company is rolling out the same playbook over and over again. I'll summarize it quickly, and then I'll say why it was bad. And so the first strategy was their uh, victim-villain framing. So we've built something good with good intentions and previous good deeds, but our product platform was manipulated, misused by bad, malicious actors. The second is pseudo-apologies. So many companies, their messages were, we apologize, deeply regret, ask for forgiveness. They were usually intertwined with... We need to do better. This message typically comes uh, in this order. While we've made steady progress, we have much more work to do, and we know we need to do better. So every tech reporter heard this specific combination like a million times by now. I mentioned they said sorry, so I pseudo-apologies because of all the elements I identified in number one. They repeatedly tried to reduce their responsibility with past good works, good intentions, victimization, basically saying we are the victim of the crisis, uh, scapegoating, blaming others. They emphasize their suffering since they are like this unfair victim of some malicious outside entity. And the third thing is that all companies, of course, stated that they are proactive. We are currently working on those immediate actions to fix this, Looking forward, we are working on those steps for improvements. 
you know, minimizing the chances that it will happen again. It's like crisis communication 101. And then they added, but our work will never be done. And I think those seven words encapsulate everything, right? But our work will never be done. Think about it. Um, it's an acknowledgement that perhaps the problems are too big to fix. So now one way to look at this template is to say, well, of course that this is their messaging. They are being asked to stop big, difficult societal problems. And that is an impossible request. But in reality, all of those techlash responses backlashed. The critics claim that the tech companies need to stop taking the role of the victim, stop blaming others. The apology tours received comments such as, don't ask for forgiveness, ask for permission. Uh, one journalist suggested that Facebook would hire a CAO, chief apology officer, to do the job full time. So the media didn't like receive those messages and just said, yes. The critics said, your actions should follow your words. And even after the companies specified their corrective actions, the critics claimed the companies now ignore the system. Okay, because they have no incentive for dramatic changes like their business models that are under attack. In such cases where the media push for, you know, fundamental changes, PR can't fix it. So the cycle of this never ending criticism becomes the new normal. There's a bunch of different points. One of them is, um, you know, did they do anything wrong? And, and, and I think in some cases, the answer is pretty clearly no. Like one case of a while ago was Google Street View. So this was where, I don't know if you followed that case, but it was Google had these cameras on cars and they'd go down. And so you can go on Google Street View and you can see a picture of a street. Pretty cool, actually, all around the world. I mean, it's, it's, you think about a company who's been able to do this, it's mind blowing and it's free. And there was some uh, there was some issue there where people who just say were not astute enough to have a password on their Wi-Fi. And it's pretty, you kind of want to do that if you're going to have Wi-Fi, that this actually, it accidentally picked up some packets or something like that. And Google never used them. There was, they never did anything. There was no problem. And yet they got pilloried in the media for stealing people's privacy. And uh, to me, it was ridiculous, just ridiculous. And, and if I had been Google, I would, I would have said, no way, you know, we're doing something that's great for the world. It's free. And if somebody can't figure out that they should have a password on their on their Wi-Fi, that's that's kind of their problem. And oh, by the way, we didn't do anything with the data. In your sense, so do you see companies that do that, or do they all sort of immediately fall into the uh, "we're sorry, we're sorry, we're not going to do it again"? I mean, I mean, really defend themselves and say, "No, we're right, you're wrong." I think uh, it's shifting. So when I analyzed 2017, I saw this template of pitting itself in 18 and 19 and 2020. But I think that. Now, at least they try to educate more or at least <clears throat> explain the complexity and the nuances and saying, yeah, maybe we collected, but we haven't done anything with it and things like that. They are pushing back a little bit more. But I think that reflexively, if you ask their uh, uh, PR spokesperson, it's easier to just roll out the playbook. Yeah, that's my sense that it just just do that and, and and don't really kind of, you know, get in the more fundamental argument about, you know, did, did, did we do anything wrong? You know, the other thing you, you mentioned to read is this um, issue where work will never be done. You know, I can see, you know, maybe that's an excuse, but on the other hand, 
if you think about any industry that's constantly evolving, and I'm not happy to believe that sort of the dry cleaning industry can say, we, we figured out dry cleaning safety and, you know, our work is done. There's very little innovation in the dry cleaning industry. <laughs> but, you know, in, in a tech industry like, like what autos is right now, I mean, their work is just beginning again. So their work had been done for a long time, but now they're moving into electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles. Their work won't be done for 30, 40 years. So I, I understand your, your point about you don't want to use that as an excuse, but they're always going to be, as these companies deal with new technological challenges and new business offerings, it seems like there are always going to be issues that they have to cope with. Sure. So one thing about the bad actors part that I mentioned in template number one is that you put the safeguards and change your policy and do things, and then the bad actors evolve, and then you need to evolve accordingly. So it becomes this arm race that they change and you change. And so it's always uh, adapting and evolving. And this is why they say those sentences saying, okay, we have few solutions now. They won't be relevant later because the world is changing. So yeah, they have to say that. Right. There's always, always new adversaries. There's always new kinds of uses. Yeah. And it's hard to, hard to keep up with that. Do you, you think we've crossed the Rubicon, as they say, that, that we're not going back to kind of more balanced? And you talked about pendulum. You think we're sort of stuck in this repeating record of tech's bad, tech's bad, tech is bad, both companies and the technology, or you think it might moderate a little bit? I mean, I think you wrote in, you wrote in your book a little bit about how you thought it might and did moderate for a tad during COVID when, hey, boy, it's fantastic. We can use, uh, you know, all teams and Microsoft uh, Teams and other things like that. Isn't, aren't the tech companies really making our lives better? But maybe that has a short shelf life. Yeah, exactly. So as I mentioned, we have these pendulum swings all the time from one extreme to the other. And I think the uh, media is drawn to the one extreme. Not the, you're looking for a balanced thing or a middle ground, you won't find it. I think we are at a point when the pendulum will not swing back to the positive extreme. It won't happen. You won't find now tech journalists writing enthusiastically and positively only that about uh, specifically big tech, of course, and specifically social media and things that are like the most backlashed issues. And I think, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, Stephen Levy from Wired asked, has the coronavirus uh, killed the tech lash? Of course it didn't. <laughs> All the tech lash issues resurfaced very quickly. So I think the tech lash survived the virus and is here to stay and it's not going to change. Yeah. Well, I would, I don't need or even want it to go back to the other side of the pendulum. I just want it and need it to go back to the middle. Good luck. Where that. there's... <laughs> I can hope. One can wish. One can dream. Well... As I, keeps us employed, Rob. I know, it does. As I'm using all sorts of wonderful technology here. Anyway, well, Nurit, thank you. This was great. Thank you so much for being here. And I encourage all our listeners to pick up the book. I wouldn't order it online because that's bad. Technology is bad. As if you can find a physical bookstore and just read a paper copy because you don't want to use technology. He's kidding. So why don't you tell our listeners where they can find you on social media and otherwise? Uh, yeah, recently I uh, rejoined Twitter after a long break, and my new account there is Dr. Teklash. And <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I, I meant to tell Rob that you stole his preferred handle. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> awesome. And you can also find me, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook. It's uh, Nirit Weisblatt, PhD. 
And of course, techlishbook.com. Great. And we will link to all of that in our show notes. That is it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, itif.org, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. And you can follow me at my new uh, Twitter handle, which is Dr. Tech Pro. <laughs> so we have more episodes and great guests lined up. New episodes drop every other Monday, so we hope you continue to tune in. 